Welcome to Legalese. At Legalese, we offer you a diverse and civil perspective on current issues affecting America and beyond, inviting the smartest minds from Arizona and the country to politely discuss the things that matter in a Socratic manner. Our intent is to improve discourse and information dissemination in a time of hyper-partisanship and poor critical thinking. No one will be called names. No one's beliefs will be mocked. This is our response to recent and biased news content. We are here simply to deliver balanced and informative discussions about legal matters that affect us all, from yours truly, soon-to-be lawyers and current lawyers and journalists united. We offer you all of this without convoluted legalese, which is a word for fancy lawyer talk. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, afternoon, or good evening, whatever time you're listening. My name is Chase Turrentine, filling in for Amina on Legalese Podcast. Today, we're sitting with several experts on the uh, war on drugs, and specifically today, we're going to be interviewing people regarding the opioid crisis in America. Uh, With me today, I have Ethan Nadelman. Uh, from the Drug Policy Alliance, and I'm going to let him give his credentials here and then give you a a short elevator pitch on how we resolve the opioid crisis here in America. Ethan, go ahead and take it away. Well, thanks, Chase. It's good to be on the podcast. Uh, So I've devoted uh, most of my adult life uh, to the cause of working to end the war on drugs and to basically engage in public education and advocacy so that people understand a different way of, of dealing with drugs, especially illicit drugs, ways that are grounded much more in the values of science, compassion, health, and human rights and much less uh, uh, in the interests of of profit, punitive prohibition, uh, moralistic punishments, and things like that. And so basically, I got going on this thing back in the 1980s. I mean, part of it involved doing a lot of research and going to work in the State Department's Narcotics Bureau, having a security clearance, interviewing DEA and other drug enforcement agents all around the world, writing a book about the internationalization of criminal law enforcement. So I got to know the law enforcement side uh, very, very well, and on a personal level and a professional level in all sorts of ways. But I had long been convinced that the war on drugs just seemed fundamentally misguided. Some of that it grew out of just going to college in the mid-70s and starting to smoke weed and thinking there was something wrong here. But the more I read and the more I studied about the history of drug policy, about the economic aspects, the health aspects, the sociological aspects, the moral aspects, the more I realized during the 1980s that if drug policy was going to be grounded in the science and the evidence and basic economic and moral reasoning, it would be going in one direction, towards a much more public health direction. Yet at that time, in the 1980s, we were going in the other direction, towards a highly punitive, moralistic war on drugs that landed up resulting in mass incarceration, massive problems all around the world in terms of drug-related crime, violence, corruption, you name it, violation of civil liberties, human rights, drugs being far more dangerous, all the things that we typically associate with the failures of alcohol prohibition. So I looked at the history of alcohol prohibition, where you know people knew alcohol was a real problem, but the, 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 the cure they advocated for in terms of alcohol prohibition landed up doing far more harm than good. 
good, generating the Al Capones and the criminals and the overflowing courts and prisons and bootleggers becoming role models for kids and all of the black market booze killing people and you name it. Well, we were dealing with a modern manifestation of the failures of alcohol prohibition. Now, that did not mean that we should respond by legalizing all of the drugs that were illegal. It seemed fairly evident that with marijuana, that should probably be the solution, and that at some point with psychedelics, we needed a more restrained version of that. But even with respect to heroin, cocaine, and marijuana, I mean, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, the drugs that are scarier, it certainly did not make sense to be punishing people for simple drug possession. It did not make sense to be throwing people in jail as opposed to offering treatment and assistance. It did not make sense to be punishing the people who sold these drugs as if they were engaging in greater crimes than rapists and murderers. That made no sense whatsoever. So I got involved in this first as a young professor at Princeton, speaking out against the war on drugs and getting involved in the nascent drug policy reform movement in the late 80s and 90s. And then in 1994, leaving Princeton University, creating an organization, initially named the Lindesmith Center, named after a professor at Indiana University, Alfred Lindesmith, who had been the pioneering uh, intellectual critic of, of the drug war, and then creating the Drug Policy Alliance in 2000, which has become the leading, the biggest, the most effective drug policy reform organization, not just in the United States, or, but in the world. And so we began to pick our spots. You know, we began, one third of our work was on changing marijuana policy, and that meant um, taking on the fact that half of all drug arrests in the country were for marijuana, mostly for possession, uh, decriminalizing marijuana, uh, moving forward on legalizing marijuana for medical purposes, and then more broadly. So I and my colleagues played pivotal roles in that. The second third of our efforts was on rolling back the contribution of the drug war to mass incarceration. Now, it had been the drug war that drove mass incarceration in the 80s and 90s and into the aughts. Well, drug policy reform became the cutting edge of criminal justice reform in the 90s and the aughts. And we led efforts both at the state level and federal level to roll back the role of the drug war in mass incarceration. And the third element was about dealing with drug use and addiction primarily as a health issue, not a criminal issue. That meant expanding access to things like methadone and buprenorphine and other effective drug treatments for opioid addiction. It meant things like uh, making access to sterile syringes legal through pharmacies or needle exchange programs to reduce the spread of HIV-AIDS. It meant, as the overdose issue grew, making naloxone, the, the really miraculous antidote drug, more widely available or passing 911 Good Samaritan laws so people who had a buddy overdose could call the cops without fear of being arrested. It meant advocating for a sex education model to drug education. It meant teaching Americans better ways of dealing with drugs that were more effective and less costly than we were doing in this country. So basically, that became my work, building an organization, advocating at the federal and state and local level, and internationally as well. And, you know, when I look back now, I stopped doing this a few years ago. Um, I think, obviously, with marijuana, we had great success in terms of shifting public opinion and in terms of legalizing marijuana for medical or more broader adult purposes. Um, at the state level. I think the, the public sentiment has turned against mass incarceration, but it's like turning around an ocean liner. You can point in a new direction, but it takes a long time to head that other way. And even with treating drugs primarily as a health issue, not a criminal issue, we really see movement in that direction, um, especially now in dealing with the issue of opioids. Fantastic. So full disclosure, uh, I probably agree with you on 95% of everything you advocate for. So in giving my best 
attempt to uh, give you a, a pushback question. Actually, before I do that, uh, I want to quote my favorite internet meme, which is, uh, I'd like to congratulate drugs for winning the war on drugs. Yeah. Uh, clearly, there has been a large problem with uh, a, the law enforcement aspect of enforcing drug prohibition, as you said, uh, very similar to the prohibition against alcohol. However, uh, I think some critics uh, might point out that there are places in the United States where we have reduced the criminal penalties significantly on uh, drug policy enforcement, namely uh, the coast, uh, the, the West Coast, Seattle, San Francisco, Sacramento, uh, places where they've decriminalized, they've provided free syringes, things like that. Some of the, the more uh, typical policy proposals by maybe not you, but people who support similar policies, and they've seen the drug epidemic grow in some of those areas. Uh, obviously, there's no panaceas, and there's a lot of issues that go into uh, drug and opioid addiction, but how would you respond to a critic who, who would point to those as yeah, empirical I mean, evidence? I mean, the thing is, what it means to say the drug epidemic grows, I mean, the bottom line here is that the objective of drug policy should be twofold. It should be to reduce as much as possible the negative consequences of drug use, the addiction, the disease, the death etc. And secondly, to reduce as much as possible the negative consequences of drug control policies. The arrests, the incarceration, the making, having drugs be more dangerous than they would otherwise be. Um, you know, all of the negative consequences of treating this, the, the fact that we're spending most of our drug control resources on law enforcement rather than on helping people, right? All of that sort of stuff. So when you look at some of the cities, both on the coasts and even in other parts of the country, the reason that they're doing these expanded access to drug treatment, decriminalization, all of this sort of stuff. It's basically to reduce the number of people dying. It's reduce the number of people going to jail unnecessarily who don't present a threat to public, public, public uh, safety or what have you. And in that respect, those cities are very much the models. If you look at Europe, which you see in Western Europe and places in Canada, Australia, elsewhere, which have been much more embraced the harm reduction approach, the, the public health, meet drug users where they're at approach, you see they are being radically more successful than we are in the United States right now. You know, so by and large, um, I, I think that when you look at the cities that are doing this thing the right way, if they had continued doing things the wrong way, the negative consequences would be far, far more dramatic. Then you look at places that are turning their back, you know, the West Virginias and the Indianas and a range of other places who just keep locking people up and, you know, saying we're not going to do a clean needle program even though we see AIDS spreading. We're not going to make naloxone available or expand access to methadone and buprenorphine maintenance. You see people dropping dead like flies, right? Look at this opioid issue now or now the methamphetamine issue. What you see is the way we're dealing with the United States is just simply ass backwards, right? It's almost as if we want people to die. It's as if we want to deal with this in a moralistic way than, rather than in an effective moral, moral public, public health approach. So to me, my view is let's put the moral morality back in drug policy, not this pseudo-moralism that says we have to treat anybody who uses heroin, cocaine, meth, or whatever as a sort of, you know, you know demonic monster. Better to treat them the same way we would as somebody who's got an alcohol problem or a nicotine addiction or a pharmaceutical drug problem and focus on how do we help these people get their lives together even if they can't quit right now. 
Now we're dealing with an opioid epidemic, people dying. I mean, why did it take us so long to make naloxone available? You know, I mean, my organization helped change laws all around the country, but the resistance we got from district attorneys and cops, oh, if you're gonna make naloxone available, then junkies are just use more drugs. Well, wait a second, we got a miracle drug here to help people and you wanna keep it out of their hands? That's why I'm very happy now to see police departments saying, give us the naloxone and put it in the community and make it available in pharmacies, anything. 911 Good Samaritan laws so people can call the cops without fearing an arrest if a buddy, you know, overdoses. That's the way to do. It, getting rid of the stigma and bias and ignorance involving methadone maintenance or buprenorphine. What we should be doing is doing what they're doing in Canada and Europe and saying, if you can't quit by any other means and you're addicted to heroin or other opioids, well, we're going to allow you to come to a clinic and get pharmaceutical heroin here because it turns out it works incredibly well in terms of helping people get their lives together, reduce crime, reduce addiction problems, reduce disease, what have you, right? I mean, it's the simple, pragmatic sorts of things. And since we're sitting here in a university, I just want to say from a research perspective, if you look at the how the federal government is spending its research dollars in this area, and mind you, the National Institute on Drug Abuse does the large majority of all funding on drug abuse research in the country. They have wasted a massive amount of money pursuing theories around addiction and brain disease stuff and try a little nickel and diming on little issues. What we really need to do is to put an army of ethnographers out into the field, interviewing the people who are using opioids, using methamphetamine, understanding why they're doing what they're doing, understanding the evolution and patterns in their use, getting a more intimate sense about what would help, and not only interviewing them, trying to interview the drug dealers. We got a huge problem with fentanyl infecting the drug supply now and killing people. Well, at what point is fentanyl entering the drug supply? At what role, at what stage of the drug distribution scheme are the, are is fentanyl getting in? Into it. Which drug dealers actually know what's in there? That fundamental research that's absolutely pivotal to dealing with this opioid epidemic is not happening even today in 2020 America. Well, Ethan Nadelman, thank you so much for joining us today. If our listeners want to follow you, how could they do that? Well, they can't. Really, well, they can follow my Twitter feed. That would be it, Ethan Nadelman. I think it's at Ethan Nadelman or Ethan at Nadelman, something like that. But you'll find it easily enough. We'll post a link to it on the site. Uh, Ethan, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank we appreciate your insights and have a great rest of your day. Okay, you too. All right, and up next we have Deborah Small, who is a self-described accolade of uh, Ethan Nagelman, who we just heard. Uh, Deborah is the uh, founder of Break the Chains. I'm going to let her introduce the organization, and then we'll dive right in. Uh, Deborah, go ahead and introduce yourself and your organization. Yes, my name is Deborah Peterson Small. I'm trained as a lawyer and public policy advocate. Um, I've been doing criminal justice, racial justice, drug policy reform work now for about 25 years. Um, I met Ethan Nadelman back in 1998, shortly after he started what was then the Linda Smith Center and became Drug Policy Alliance. Um, I worked with him for eight years at the Drug Policy Alliance doing community outreach and um, policy advocacy, really with a specific emphasis on um, communities of color. And in 2003, I founded Break the Chains to sort of expand that work. Um, at the time, there was still a real problem to some degree in having the issues around racial justice be predominant in the issues around drug policy reform. I think the most 
largest human rights abuses in the area of drug policy really are the ones that impact racial, ethnic, religious minorities, LGBTQ and marginalized communities. And I believe that in order for a movement to be successful, the people who are most impacted need to be at the forefront of that. And so it's been wonderful for me to see how these issues, and particularly through the um, New Jim Crow and the work of Black Lives Matters, that there's much more awareness, both in the black community and in the white community, of the racial impacts of the war on drugs. All right. Um, now, when I was going through law school, one of the things that was very apparent to me was that the vast majority of uh, Fourth Amendment abuses took place because of the war on drugs. It was because of the war on drugs, a crime that doesn't have a victim other than potentially the user of the drugs. Therefore, there's nobody reporting it. So the police and law enforcement generally had to invade a lot of uh, a lot of individual you know, privacy concerns in order to identify the violators of these laws. Uh, that's ten, that's tended to be uh, the focus for you know civil libertarians and things like that, uh, along with the potential drug savings. Um, but you focus primarily on a racial justice uh, aspect of this. Are there differences between the approach I just described and what you see, or is there a more nuanced way to flush that out that incorporates the racial justice element to it? Actually, you know, a lot of my work has also focused on the intersection of reproductive justice and drug policy. And so when it comes to women, is where you really see the most egregious violations of civil liberties and privacies under privacy rights under the guise of the drug war, particularly with respect to pregnant and parenting women. And so, and unfortunately, one of the things that the war on drugs has done is given law enforcement more tools to use in the abortion wars. So it used to be that the only way that you knew if a woman was pregnant and were trying to terminate her pregnancy was by somehow finding out who she was going to see as a doctor or following her to a clinic or whatever. But now you have states where women who are getting regular um, health treatment, including maybe not prenatal care, but some other form of obstetric care, are having their urine samples and blood samples tested by local law enforcement to determine whether or not they're using drugs and or if they're pregnant. And you now have a number of states who have passed laws that charge women with fetal assault if they're accused of using drugs while they're pregnant. And that's independent of whether or not there's any negative outcome for that fetus or baby once it's born. The very fact that that woman has introduced an illicit substance into her body is considered an assault on her fetus. And so if you want to talk about the violations of, of individual privacy and um, and liberty um, to pursue a public safety objective, that to me is one of the grossest ones. And so I'm actually here today um, representing National Advocates for Pregnant Women um, to sort of highlight that intersection because while people are aware of the disproportionate impact of drug policy on people of color, we tend not to think about the ways in which women, and particularly pregnant and parenting women, are targeted and the ways in which their vulnerabilities, because again, if you put a woman in a position where she has to choose between getting health care that she needs for herself or her fetus or risk police surveillance, that's like an impossible situation. And it's not one of those things that you see happening in places that have big media coverage like New York and California. 
California. It's much more likely to happen in places like Indiana and Alabama and Louisiana and Kentucky and Ohio and other places where women's reproductive rights are under assault, where you also have high levels of drug abuse, not just within black communities, but poor communities in general. So um, I support and applaud the work of um, civil libertarians who elevate these issues. My only concern in the context of drug policy reform is that many of the people who come to the issue from a libertarian point of view prefer to focus on the economic benefits of reform than the human rights benefits. So I think it's important that we can save money, but I think it's even more important that we save lives. I think it's great that we can help close budget gaps, but I think it's even more important that we close prisons and that we actually invest in people, as opposed to giving states more money to use on things that don't benefit those people. And as the uh, civil libertarian, I certainly support the saving money, but I think a lot of us would certainly, hopefully all of us, uh, would agree that saving lives uh, should be the, the key element here. Uh, so, again, at the risk of agreeing too much and uh, not giving you, uh, you know, a question to wrestle with, uh, I think a question that somebody who on the opposing side of this would uh, pose might look something like, if we were not to, to do these uh, sorts of checks, and again, the pregnancy one is new to me, that seems uh, an egregious violation of uh, personal rights and difficult to differentiate between that and a woman who's smoking, uh, you know, eating, you know, unhealthy, mm -hmm. uh, hanging out, my wife is pregnant right now, uh, eating undercooked deli meats and, you know, the nine, there's lots of things that can Going be harmful. Going skiing, doing any Going number of things that could possibly potentially harm, I mean, how far, but this is really more about the abortion wars and the control of women's bodies than it is about protecting women's health or protecting the health of their fetuses, because the same people who support this don't support um, providing income supports to women or well baby supports to women or time off for work for women after they have a baby. But don't let me stop with that one. Anyway, go ahead. So where, where would uh, the line be drawn then? Uh, or should a line be drawn? At a certain point, uh, you know, after a certain point in pregnancy, uh, you know, it's known that, you know, the baby can feel pain. Uh, there's limits on abortion at this point. So a woman eight months into pregnancy, she's at this point chosen to, to take the pregnancy to term, starts injecting heroin. Is there a uh, vital role for the state or even a legitimate role for the state to step in and say, you are harming a, you know, a person, or I think that's how the states are designed. They're, they're providing personhood rights to uh, the fetus at that point. But I think that that's somewhat problematic. I mean, we could have a debate about when does a person become a person. Sure. I believe a person becomes a person when they're born, not any time before that. But that does not mean that there isn't a role for the state in protecting fetal viability, for protecting fetal health. But one of the things that we've seen in this arena of public health, that the best way to help the, the child is to help the mother. It's actually not good on any level from a policy point of view to make a woman be in um, a, a conflictual relationship with the baby that she's carrying in her body. So to me, it, that the whole premise that somehow you're gonna protect the fetus by punishing the mother makes no sense. What we do know, what the science has shown us, what experience has shown us, is that women, even women who are using drugs during pregnancy, are also very interested in protecting the health of their fetuses. So when you give them alternatives that can address their 
substance abuse issues and protect the health of their fetuses, they're willing to do that. Usually methadone has proven to be a very effective treatment for pregnant women that protects them from the difficulties of withdrawal and also protects the health of their babies. But we live in a frame in which many courts, many judges, many doctors don't believe that methadone is effective. And so they basically tell the woman you either have to quit using drugs cold turkey, which actually creates more risk for her, or we're going to lock you up and make you do it that way. All right. Well, we've reached the end of our time, Ms. Small. Thank you so much for uh, coming and chatting with me today. Uh, real quick, if uh, you want to give a plug to yourself or your organization, how can people follow you and oh, your work? Oh, they can look for me. Um, I'm not a big social media person, I must confess. Smart. <laughs> <laughs> it's just too crazy, I have to admit. But anyone can get in touch with me. You can um, email at me at deborahpsmall at gmail.com or visit us at um, breakchains.org. Thank you very much. And you have a great one. Thanks so much. And we're back. Uh, now we are interviewing uh, Isla Haas. Isla Haas is at uh, the Indiana University. And uh, I'm going to let her explain some of her areas of focus for her research. And then we'll dive right in. Isla, great. take it away. Thanks so much, Chase. I am a public health attorney by training and currently serving as a professor of law at IU's McKinney School of Law. And will be joining the faculty at University of Tulsa at their Native American Law Center this summer. My research explores issues in tribal public health law and the impact of federal Indian law, including federal criminal laws, on the health outcomes of American Indians and Alaska Natives. All right. So uh, I think most attorneys even are going to be largely ignorant of the intersection of how uh, U.S. American law intersects with uh, Native American law. Um, here at uh, Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, we have an Indian legal program as well. Uh, so here we might have a little bit more of a focus on that, but I think the general public may not. Uh, can you expound on just how the laws uh, affect Native American communities specifically before we even dive into the uh, drug laws. Absolutely, and um, I really appreciate your comment because the hill that I would die on is that all students, especially law students, should have some exposure to Indian law before they graduate, even though it is something that gets marginalized as unimportant and irrelevant. In fact, Indian law matters regardless of your practice area. If you're doing family law, if you're doing business law, if you're doing criminal law, these issues are going to come up. So for background, there are 574 federally recognized tribes within the boundaries of the United States. Tribes are sovereign nations and they have been sovereign nations for time immemorial, operating their own governments, making their own laws, and being ruled by those own laws. Federal law recognizes the sovereignty of 574 governments, and each one of these tribes have their own, sometimes constitutions, tribal codes, uh, tribal court systems, um, and case laws, but each tribe is really unique, not only with their laws and their governing structures, but also their history, their cultural, their practices, their teaching. And so there's so much diversity from tribe to tribe. There's also a tendency to glump all tribes together, and that's just not accurate. We've got distinct nations, and um, in addition to these distinct, distinct nations, we have distinct communities. Um, urban Indians um, can include either um, tribal members that have moved to more urban areas for a variety of um, personal and professional reasons, or it could be a reflection of urban Indians through federal relocation programs that 
purposefully displaced these individuals away from their tribe and to Indian uh, to urban areas again to the detriment, unfortunately, of um, a lot of these communities and their culture. So, with that, uh, I. In the United States, we have varying levels of uh, drug laws, both at the federal level and at the state level. Yeah. If the Indian tribes are, are sovereign nations, essentially, uh, how does, you know, if Arizona were to pass a law or uh, the uh, scheduling of certain drugs yeah. at uh, the federal level, how does that play into enforcement or is there enforcement yes. at, on uh, Indian reservations or against Indians? not on the reservation, but out in uh, non-native talent. Yeah, so this is a really complex issue um, that I talk about for days in, in my classes. But just for an overview, tribes or some nations, they have their own laws, they have their own criminal laws. Part of the federal government's recognition of tribal sovereignty includes some strings, and unfortunately some of those strings is the application of federal and sometimes state laws on tribal lands. So the default rule is that states are not gonna have any jurisdiction on tribal lands, but the federal government is gonna have concurrent jurisdiction with tribes. Regardless of the criminal law framework, which varies depending on the statute, depending on the location, depending on even the tribe within a certain state, the default rule is that tribes are always going to have their criminal jurisdiction and their all sorts of other jurisdictions, civil jurisdiction, tax regulatory jurisdiction, etc. Why criminal law gets really complicated is for a few reasons. We've got um, what's referred to as federal plenary power, which um, the Supreme Court has recognized as complete authority for Congress to make any laws related to tribes or American Indians and Alaska Natives, even if that law is abrogating a tribal treaty right, which we know per the Constitution, treaties are the supreme law of the land. So because of this, the federal government, through a variety of acts, Major Crimes Act, among others, have created different levels of jurisdiction on crimes in Indian country, sometimes adding a federal layer for major crimes like murder or rape. Sometimes through Public Law 280, for example, federal law, Congress using their plenary power, has opted to take away federal jurisdiction on criminal matters and instead give it to states. And so they did that in states, Alaska, California, Minnesota, Nebraska, Oregon, Wisconsin, and then those were the mandatory Public Law 280 states, and then optional Public Law 280 states to include Florida, Idaho, and Washington. So then in these jurisdictions, we've got um, either tribal state criminal jurisdiction or federal tribal state criminal jurisdiction. What makes it even more complicated is the locus of the crime, whether it occurred in Indian country, what part of Indian country, who the perpetrator was, who the victim was, and the type of crime could all shift what kind of jurisdiction that might be coming into play. So in general, non-Indians committing crimes against non-Indians with an Indian country is gonna end up going to state court. So it's really complicated. When we're talking about drugs, um, tribes have their sovereign authority to make their own drug laws and choose how they're going to um, prosecute for those crimes. Um, but more often than not, we're going to see federal prosecution of many of those kinds of crimes. There's a lot of implications to that in general. 
sentencing is going to be harsher if you're getting charged under drug-related crime at the federal level versus state level. So you're seeing, because of the jurisdictional structure, that Native Americans are going to be receiving harsher penalties through the federal system than they would have at the state counterpart system. We're seeing also a lot of disparities. Um, we are seeing increased rates of incarceration of Native Americans both in federal courts at higher rates than their um, white male or white female counterparts, so over three times higher rates of incarceration for Native American men versus um, white men, over six times the rates of incarceration for Native American women versus white women. Um, but we're also seeing this manifest in state courts. So. Um, in general, you know, not every tribe has a reservation. Even tribes that do have a reservation doesn't mean their members all are living in Indian country. And so if crimes are getting committed on state lands, for example, and so there's going to be the state law criminal jurisdiction hook. So even in state courts, we're seeing over-representation of incarceration of Native Americans for a variety of crimes, including drug-related crimes. So in a state like Montana, um, you're seeing dockets of... Um, you know, 30% including Native Americans, or in North Dakota, 25%. And so, um, and again, these numbers are variable depending the time periods, but why is this much over-representation? I argue that it's both racist policies um, and also anti-tribal policies. And so what's unique about um, considering some of these issues when we're talking about American Indians, Alaska Natives, yes, they're a racial ethnic group and there's racism involved, but because of tribal sovereignty, there's a lot of tension often between state governments, state courts, state law enforcement, uh, resisting tribal right to be sovereign and their authority over their lands and their people. Um, and a lot of resistance to accepting tribal court jurisdiction. And so you often will see over-penalization uh, against American Indians and Alaska Natives. Now, in order, uh, I addressed this in an earlier section of the podcast, but I discussed how uh, the war on drugs has largely been a, I, that's, that's what your criminal procedure class is about. It's about the war on drugs. The majority of uh, Fourth Amendment-related issues came about because in most crimes, you have somebody who, you know, there's a victim, and the victim reports the crime. Mm -hmm. There's not so much of a victim when it comes to drug-related crimes, uh, except for, you know, giving the benefit of the doubt, the victim would be the person themselves, and they're not going to self-report. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the state has been given, you know, much broader authority to invade kind of the, the personal uh, privacy rights of individuals. Now, for how that would apply to a native, uh, native tribes. Do you find that those sorts of issues are coming about from uh, surveillance of uh, native people on reservation land? Or are a lot of these crimes happening that are outside of the reservation land and simply by nature of having you know, dual or tri-sovereignty? I've never tried that term out. Uh, you see a little bit higher punishments uh, because there's going to be some variability and some stacking uh, based on the jurisdiction that's trying them. Yeah, so um, you know, we've got our public law to a states where you're going to have state jurisdiction, um, but overall there's going to be concurrent federal and tribal jurisdiction, and so a lot of the policing might be done at the federal level 
That's not to say there aren't tribal police officers and there aren't tribal codes, um, and, but tribes have the discretion and using their sovereign authority in terms of how they are going to be policing. So I think part of that federal presence is part of that. Um, especially because there's so much variability in terms of tribal infrastructure and what their police force might look like, what their healthcare systems might look like. And um, sometimes the federal presence is going to be the primary tool for law enforcement, in which case, again, you're going to see the, the harsher uh, sentencing and incarceration in those instances. I think to your other question about is it just like over surveillance, I do, we've got plenty of examples even when local law enforcement don't have jurisdiction that they continue to patrol tribal lands um, and so I, and assert their jurisdiction and seeing that get litigated in the courts. Um, is, it's really unfortunate that tribes are going to have to invest that kind of money into doing that because of folks purposefully trying to challenge their jurisdiction and sovereignty. But on the flip side, we also have communities um, in some public law 280 states where states do have jurisdiction, but they're opting not to police because they don't feel like it's their own community because they're worried about liability, they're worried about some of the jurisdictional challenges. And so I can't give you a black blanket answer because the laws are so variable and then the relationship with partners are so variable. But at the end of the day, when I look at numbers in terms of the over-incarceration of Native Americans, I see racism. We've documented over and over again that black, brown, Native peoples do not use drugs at higher rates than their white counterparts, but yet they're getting punished for them at higher rates. Those are systematic structures uh, of racism built into our law enforcement processes. So I promised you a pushback question, yeah. uh, and we are at the end of our time, so I, I yeah. don't want to uh, stress you to answer this super quickly. Yeah. Um, uh, J.D. Vance wrote the Hillbilly Elegy, uh, congressman from yeah. uh, Ohio, yeah. but talked about his time, I believe it was in Kentucky, yeah. and then Ohio. Um, and he documents a lot of the struggles uh, specifically with poor whites, uh, you know, hence the name Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah. And one of the, the consistent traits is, uh, you know, there's a pretty heavily drug usage, uh, not specifically uh, by race, but by poverty level. And there's a lot of uh, socioeconomic uh, considerations that go into, uh, you know, Native Americans and uh, the generally, uh, you know, below average uh, economic status. Yeah. Um, is it possible, or what would you say to somebody that would argue that, well, this isn't so much of a racial issue, this is more of a, it's a poverty issue. Sure. And if we address poverty or we, you know, uh, bring them into the, the marketplace as a whole and can help them thrive, yeah. we might see these problems fall off. You've yeah. claimed that it's more racially motivated. Yeah. Uh, so how would you push back against something like that? Yeah, I, I appreciate that comment. And again, this is such a complex issue. When we're talking about what leads to substance use disorder, we are absolutely talking about things like housing insecurity. We're talking about food insecurity, income insecurity, education insecurity, and that correlates with socioeconomic status and poverty. So yes, you're going to see higher rates of substance use disorder in some of these communities, regardless of color. Um, but I want to push back a little bit and quote very conveniently something that my uh, colleague Deborah Small said in her uh, panel discussion earlier today. It's not 
the increased rates of, and I'm paraphrasing because it won't be as elegant sure. as what she said, but we're seeing not increased rates of drug use, we're seeing increased rates of the criminalization of drug use. So when we're looking at poor people or when we're looking at blacks or Native Americans. And so we've got all of these communities that are not of color in white communities where all of this is happening and even substance use disorders happening, but there aren't systems to try to challenge it through the criminal justice system. Well, uh, Isla, thank you so much yes, for your thanks, uh, time enjoyed today. enjoyed talking with you. I enjoyed it as well. Um, if people wanted to follow you on social media or follow your work, how might somebody do that? I'm on Twitter at, at Isla Haas, A-I-L-A-H-O-S-S. Thank you so much. Thank you, I appreciate it. All right, and for our last guest today, we have Marissa Rodriguez, who is the director of the San Francisco Office of Cannabis. Uh, Marissa, can you tell us a little bit about your background and a little bit about the office and what we're going to be talking about today? Sure, yeah. Thank you, and thank you for having me today. Um, so, you said it. I'm Marissa Rodriguez. I'm the director of the Office of Cannabis in San Francisco. Um, and what does that mean? It's kind of a very vague name, the Office of Cannabis. I've had people call us asking for apes and other things, thinking <laughs> that we're a dispensary. We're not a dispensary. I've had angry uh, seniors calling me saying, am I pushing cannabis on the community? No, I'm not. I'm actually, I'm a regulator. And um, our role, in my role in particular, is to oversee our permitting process in San Francisco post Prop 64 as um, cannabis became legalized in the state of California, we needed a framework to essentially roll this out. And every jurisdiction in the state can roll out cannabis as they see fit. Um, San Francisco decided to go soup to nuts, like we were going to do it all, of course. I mean, that is sort of our culture, that is our history, and in fact, it is what the community wanted. Proposition 64 passed overwhelmingly in San Francisco, where 75% voted in favor. But interestingly, as we have been trying to roll this out, there have been, there's been a lot of pushback by the community and I think it's more still um, those fears around having what was once a schedule, well still is actually a schedule one drug, um, but an illegal substance now being legal and people having a lot of fears because there were, a lot of that was pushed in, in our narrative as a culture here, you know, in our country. So um, it has been a really interesting time and a really interesting challenge. Um, it's an exciting time. There's nothing like it. We are building this thing while, while we are flying it. You know, that's sort of the, the, the way it's been referred to a lot for people who are kind of new in this space and trying to um, set up these offices and build them from scratch. So it's exciting. We, we permit the entire supply chain, which means cultivation, manufacturing, distribution, delivery, even our labs in, in California, as well as um, our retail fronts. So right now, um, San Francisco still has two frameworks. We have our medicinal framework and our um, adult use framework. The P Department of Public Health used to oversee or continues to oversee our medicinal framework under article 33 we oversee our post prop 64 framework under article 16 eventually they will come together just right now our focus and our lens is entirely an equity one in what that means for san francisco as equity looks different all over depending on where you are equity in san francisco is not going to look like equity in illinois for example for us it's identifying um, certain criteria that 
ensure an individual who has been negatively impacted by the war on drugs has an opportunity, the first opportunity, to engage in this legal market. Um, so that's been a really unique thing to roll out and very um, rewarding, certainly challenging, as this office was not set up initially with the, all the adequate resources. We continue to fight that, but we have a lot of support from our city, from our mayor, and from our city administrator, so, and our community, so it's been very, very um, rewarding, mm -hmm. so to speak. All right, so two kind of divergent uh, directions that uh, I think this conversation can go, and we'll try to get both. Um, we talked a little bit uh, before the we started recording about expungements, but before yeah. we get there, uh, the the overwhelm or the overarching uh, theme of this podcast is the opioid crisis. One of the things that I've noticed in both reviewing uh, in reviewing data at various uh, you know, law firms. I worked at the, gov or the governor's office a while back and you get reports that talk about uh, some that clearly show that uh, legalizing marijuana increases opioid use. And then you go to other places and you get clear evidence that, well, no, it's the exact opposite. Uh, for somebody who's trying, who would be more empirically minded, how would you come to a conclusion about that? And uh, what has your uh, you know, feet on the ground demonstrated? Yeah, I mean, that's a really, really um, interesting area that I think deserves more exploration. I think the issue here is really, I'm encouraged and excited for the opportunity to have more science-based studies on all of this. We're still in a space where you can't, because it's still Schedule One, you can't study marijuana as easily as um, we would hope. And I think as we're getting closer to rolling out programs nationwide, we're gonna start to get more data. Um, my sense is you're gonna start to see uh, cannabis coming out as it has always been um, in a more therapeutic way and being something that can help. You see it with PTSD, you see it with um, even NFL players needing it for, for pain management so that they're not hooked on opioids. But again, we need to be thoughtful and we need to make sure that we are presenting accurate information. Um, and that's, that's important, no matter what it is that we're consuming, whether it's alcohol, whether it's smoking, whether, you know, whether it's cannabis, whether it's opioids, that we have perfect information to work from. It's not always good news. Um, but you know, I think the real issue is not being caught up in the hysteria. It's stepping back and saying, okay, here is the list of awful things that can happen, kind of like those commercials that we hear when they're trying to push some pharmaceutical on us, and it's like, this is going to cause there God knows. Uh, in, imposing dark clouds that roll in, stock yes. footage, it's, it's very... And some other, other yeah, yeah, scary things. Um, and you kind of wonder, wait, why would I ever consume that? Oh, right, because it says it fixes this. So at least give me, you know, an option to choose and, the, you know, good information to work from, and I think that's the best way to answer that. Okay. And uh, the next question I have uh, related to a little bit of what you said about equity. Uh, it sounds like San Francisco is making an effort to take those people who were negatively affected by the war on drugs and give them an opportunity to use the legalization of marijuana as a stepping stone to, you know, seek employment or uh, otherwise in the industry. Um, now, how, do, how does that roll out? Is it people who are currently incarcerated? Are these formerly incarcerated who have served their time? And uh, we've discussed expungement previously. If, uh, if they are people who have already served their time, what are the efforts looking like to uh, you know, expunge the records of those who uh, 
were, are still serving time or uh, have their records already showing this felony. Yeah, thanks for asking that. So in order to answer that, I'll start a little bit with my background. Um, I started my career as a prosecutor in San Francisco, and I think it's kind of a unique journey to once uh, I was furthering the war on drugs, just as my mandate, that was what we did, and that was public safety, and that's how we understood it. And kind of taking this shift, post Prop 64, the district attorney um, at the time, uh, George Gascon, really felt it was important that we be on the right side of history with this rollout, understand that we had gotten it wrong, and it was very, very uh, healing, even as uh, an employee, and, and at the time I was on his policy team, and having these conversations uh, was you know, the first of its kind and, and novel, and important that we look at this and look at it in a very thoughtful way. And so the way to do that meant, one, recognizing the harm, recognizing that we had it wrong, and recognizing our role in all of this as government employees, right? And so as government kind of perpetrating these harms through laws. So in order to expunge one's record, it requires taking time off work, petitioning the court. It's a big, long dance. And it didn't seem right that that would be the onus on the person who had been harmed. And so we, in our office, uh, through George's leadership, decided that the best thing would be to retroactively expunge and do it automatically so that you wouldn't have to petition. And so we actually expunged over 9,000 uh, felony and misdemeanor-related misdemeanor offenses. Now, fast forward, we have an office of cannabis. It's set up. And in order to qualify as an equity applicant, you have to meet three of six criteria. To your point, one of those is that you had a, a prior um, arrest or conviction for cannabis, in particular, for cannabis, either you, yourself or a family member, along with some other criteria, like you attended a public school in San Francisco for a period of time. This period of time is essentially the war on drugs, you know, when Nixon issued the war and basically 2016 when it became legal, that time frame, uh, you lived, one of the other criteria is having lived in, a, in an eligible census tract in our city. I mentioned the public school. Um, there's an asset test. There is what I noted, which is whether or not you or a family member have been um, convicted of a, or arrested of a, a cannabis offense. And lastly, have you experienced housing insecurity, either by being evic evicted or losing a housing subsidy? And those are really interesting, very specific San Francisco things. So for our equity community, um, that, you know, that criteria doesn't necessarily work in another jurisdiction. Uh, mind you, California Prop 209 means that we cannot um, just select those most impacted, which are communities um, you know, historically African-American and, and Latino, right? Black and brown communities. And we can't just say, okay, you meet this, let's go. Um, we sort of had to reverse engineer for race. And so it gets a little bit complicated and, and there are some nuances there, but it has worked. And I think it's worked even there, you know, there is diversity in our equity community, which I think makes a lot of sense because it's very reflective of San Francisco and the community that we serve. All right. You mentioned that you were a, uh, a city attorney, a prosecutor to start with. Mm -hmm. uh, so I promised you a pushback question. Sure. Uh, as a prosecutor, uh, and this is well known in the legal community, and I'm sure you can attest to it, uh, something like 97% of all criminal cases plead down, mm. right? So what that means in, in practice is that uh, you might have 
several people who have a drug felony offense that maybe had a more egregious offense uh, that was knocked off or pled down. And now it sounds like the city of San Francisco is providing those people uh, kind of a leg up. How do you see the role of uh, the plea bargaining system? And, you know, sometimes they prosecutors overcharge and then plea down. Sometimes uh, the harder to prove crimes fall off and things like that. Uh, are there any checks to ensure that, you know, people who probably committed violent crimes but pled down to make it easy uh, aren't receiving an added leg up over, say, a law-abiding citizen who you know, hasn't done any of those things? Or what? how would you respond yeah, to somebody no, I, who... I actually really appreciate that question, and I think the best way to answer that is to actually look at this more holistically and say, um, we're not talking about getting in the minutia of the individual scenarios that could have played out or maybe didn't play out. What we're talking about is an overall impact that the war on drugs has had disproportionately of communities of color. So... You know, just as much as the individual that was incarcerated for whatever behavior that led him or her to those actions that were probably the result of, you know, all of these traumas that I'm talking about, the war on drugs talks about other, I mean, it's not just, you know, the law, but, but poverty and other traumas that are associated with that. There's also other individuals who live in these communities that may not have actually experienced uh, criminal justice involvement, but were impacted and do qualify as well. Um, we look at everyone as an individual, and as they come through, we evaluate every single case. So there, there are situations when we have to kind of push back and say that not. I don't. I don't look at this as a leg up process as much as evening the playing field. That that those who were most impacted should have an opportunity to engage in a legal market that has harmed them. If there is a back round of other egregious behavior that has not been rectified because I think ultimately the idea is to restore harm um, and to be more restorative in our approach so if an individual can make a showing that they have become rehabilitated that they've given back to their communities that they have changed um, and understand why the drivers of their crimes why they got to that point then I think that they too deserve a second chance especially since they were impacted so Right. And I'd like to always point out that actually um, the, the top criteria that we see people becoming verified through are not uh, criminal justice involvement. It's housing insecurity, it's census tract, and um, unified school district. Actually, I think it's income, not housing insecurity, income. So it's, it's a bit of a misnomer that you kind of have to you know, have committed a crime in order to be in the space. No, the war on drugs impacted people who actually didn't commit crimes. Interesting. All right, well, Marissa Rodriguez, the director of the San Francisco Office of Cannabis, if people wanted to follow your work or the work of your office, how might they go about that? Yeah, I'd say just Google the San Francisco Office of Cannabis. will pop up. It's kind of a rare thing. <laughs> and you'll see the work that we do. Our website um, is pretty informative. We believe in a very transparent outward model. We want to be accessible. You can actually call our office and ask questions, and we pick up probably by the second ring. So. Um, we pride ourselves on that. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in today. My name is Chase Turrentine for Legal Ease Podcast, signing off.